On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses the Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friend Ken Gregory as we start the segment on Pink Floyd covering The Piper at the Gates of Dawn. Yeah, so Pink Floyd, right? This is... This was, you know, this was a radio staple when we were when we were young kids. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, nice mug, by the way. That's uh, oh, cheers, flavor mug, pretty slick. Um, mm-hmm. Broke the the shipping department, but it's still very mm-hmm. good looking. Yeah, so you know, I, I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't have a clear memory of of you know when I figured out Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd was just always there. Um, cause what dark side came out in 75, I think it was. Oh and my. One of the most famous albums of all time, you know, came out when we were five. So clearly we weren't purchasing music. We weren't actively listening to music, but it was there as we sort of grew up and, and you couldn't really escape it. And, you know, the wall came out when we were nine, I guess, which is probably right at the cusp. And it was still, you know, going strong when when we were old enough to really start listening to radio on our own, I think. It was inescapable. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to talking about The Wall because it was so ubiquitous and it was such a big part of, you know, sort of growing up in, in that era and, and the, the music that you would hear on the radio. And you almost take things like that for granted. And it's interesting. I've, I have found it interesting to go back, you know, for the palaver and, and, and look at that because, you know, again, when, when we get ready for one of these long segments, I will spend weeks or months just randomly going through the catalog and listening to whatever sort of catches my, my fancy that day, just to sort of, you know, get a, a the lay of the land, if you will. With Pink Floyd, I'll be quite frank, before we started, before I started preparing for this, and, and, and I have been preparing for quite some time, I really didn't know anything prior to Dark Side of the Moon, except for one of these days, which was on a collection of great dance songs. That was it. I was, I was very familiar with, you know, everything before that, but I didn't know a lot of the a lot of the rest of this and i've really really enjoyed kind of getting to know this and you know as i mentioned listening to the stuff that i did know with this in mind and and plus with the experience of listening to the earlier stuff you know it it, it gave me some different things to think about i'm very much looking forward to this this segment i think this is going to be a very very interesting one when uh when we really get into it and I will refer our listeners back to the special concert series that we did with Joe Cass of Total Mass Retain on Nick Mason's Saucer Full of Secrets. Yeah, Beacon Theater in New York. Yeah. Scroll back. Because in that episode, Joe talks a little bit about his experience, his early experience listening to Floyd on vinyl with, with a buddy of his. And, you know, this was... 
you know, that, that concert dealt with a lot of these, these early tracks. And in some ways, I think it's almost good that I missed that show because I would not have been ready for it when, when it came around, which is, you know, it's kind of bittersweet. You know, I, I really definitely would have liked to have seen it. Maybe it would have kickstarted me, but I, I can tell you that I, I, I didn't really have any level of familiarity with that material at that time. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's very, very cool. So, I, I mean, what about you, Ken? Well, it's fascinating. I think you cited 1975. That's actually Wish You Were Here and Dark Side, remarkably, is 1973, which we think of as... 73? Wow. Isn't that amazing? We think of that as an infantile time in progressive rock. So we're basically 1970s Gen Xers, and there would have been a massive difference between an album that came out when we were five and something that came out when we were three if we were peripherally hearing FM radio. As we roam the, the world and, and hearing things coming out of cars and hearing things coming out of neighbors' windows and, and being fascinated by all these sounds, I think my first cognition for hearing a band coming out of my neighbor's cars was Led Zeppelin. They'd play street hockey and they'd, <laughs> and they'd, and they'd play Led Zeppelin out of, out of the, uh, it looked something that looked very much like a Chevy Nova, uh, blasting music, just sitting there idling and whatnot while they, while they played street hockey. And I was just overwhelmed by this music. Um, and I do remember Pink Floyd t-shirts in the neighborhood from the older kids. And clearly the wall was something tangible where I, I, I actually, you know, knew I could associate the visuals with the band logos and the t-shirts with what I had heard on the radio. Right. That, that was, that was pretty big, pretty huge. Ah, this is this is so wrapped up in the Beatles discography and the moody blues and things that were going on in psychedelia. And it is so rare that bands make the um, segue from psychedelia to something as complicated as Prague. I mean, it's so rare that, that a band kind of, you know, leaps genre so definitively like this but but for whatever reason we've adopted pink floyd as 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 as, as Prague. it's the only natural classification for them it's fascinating we have been sort of having some fun on the the text stream over the last couple weeks on whether pink floyd is actually Prague, right because there seems to be a decided lack of odd time signatures and quote unquote hobbit shit. You know. Okay. Well, we have gnome, which we will get to. <laughs> and we have money, which is an odd time. So we'll, we'll take what we can get. <laughs> that, that's, that's absolutely right. And, um, you know, and, and I say that with my, with my tongue in my cheek, right? Because clearly Pink Floyd is Prague clearly, but it's, it's one of the things that really struck me when I went, when I started into the, the, the early part of this. Cause again, I, I knew nothing of the early stuff of Floyd. I, I am extraordinarily, um, un, uninformed about psychedelia. 
you know, mm-hmm. be, beyond what shows up on Sergeant Pepper's, I got nothing. I, I don't really know anything about it. But one of the things that we, we've sort of touched on, you know, when you talk about the, the pantheon of progressive rock, your yeses, your genesises, your, your Pink Floyds, your, your Moody Blues, your Jethro Tulls, your King Crimsons, they all have sort of their own interpretation of what prog is. And, you know, it really comes from where they started. Because they, they started in different places, right? Yes wanted to be uh, an American blues cover band. <laughs> Genesis wanted to be the Bee Gees. These guys were playing, you know, what essentially amounts to raves in central London. And and so they all came into this central area from, from different starting points. And it, it colored their foundation. And, and it, it colored the way they interpreted and, and wrote progressive music, even though they all moved towards similar type areas. I found that to be energizing. I found it to be exciting. And, and I can't wait to sort of think about this. Well, um, let's really hit the history with the evil stuff up front. Oh, okay. Uh, we could say that culturally, this happened. Uh, because society, the free world didn't learn from World War II. And uh, for whatever reason, the U.S. got out of World War II without noticeable, you know, property damage or something. And they thought it was hunky-dory in 1964 to uh, start the Vietnam War with the Gulf of Tonkin incident and all this other shit. It wasn't just Vietnam. We had the bombing of uh, Laos. And uh, th- th- this this persisted sixty four through the early seventies, and uh, just just amounted to more artillery than had been used in the entire uh, uh, field of World War Two, and just massive bombing, and it, it it consumed the American public and 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 and, and the reactionary. You know, beatnik culture that came up around Hate Ashbury, that whole uh, West California coast, and that that culture kind of started what was flower power into psychedelia. Although they didn't have a draft or the the same forces in in Britain, they still adopted that same culture. So I think you have to make that that parallel between the culture that the Floyd became, and the Haight-Ashbury culture. One of the things that I have attempted to do in preparation, and I've mentioned this on the text as well, is is I purchased Inside Out, a personal history of Pink Floyd by one Nick Mason. Now, normally, and this is... Oh, there's a timeline in here. Well, Wonderful. Helpful. I love timelines. I love timelines, too. Um, so this is a 367-page book. Uh, I have managed in the last month to get through 81 pages of this because it is abysmally boring. And I feel, I feel, I feel terrible <laughs> saying that. But it is... I, I mean, I tore through Rutherford's book. This one, I just... It's like pulling teeth. It's it's amazing. And you would think with a story like Pink Floyd, it would be 
fascinating and a page turner. And I, I mean, I just, it's, it's a difficult slog to get through. So I, I haven't really gotten that deep into it, but he does go into some decent amount of detail of, you know, some of the, 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 the cultural aspects that you're talking about and the places that they would play in London as they were sort of coming up. And, and one of the things that really struck me because it's, you know, you mentioned sort of the difference in experience between post-war United States and post-war Europe. Right out of the gate, he mentions the fact that Roger Waters' mother was, for a time, a member of the Communist Party. Now, in the U.S., you hear Communist Party and you think, well, we don't have any communists around here. We don't do that sort of thing. But How would she have gotten a job? How would she have supported a son? How would, yeah. But, but I mean, that was, that was a thing in post-war England, right? That, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's, it's a difference of experience and maybe we can get Ken Fuller on to, to help us out here because, you know, I, I, I just, I was struck by that. I'm like, wow, that's really something. And then he goes into, you know, one of the interesting things that, that I did sort of come across you know, and, and again, like all of these, these bands when they're young, you know, a, a bunch of kids in school go out and, you know, get secondhand instruments because they think it looks cool and they kind of figure it out, right? Pink Floyd, you know, they kind of got roped in with some, some people who were doing, you know, experiments with, with light demonstrations. And so they ended up having their own sort of light rig that they would, would bring around and they kind of fell into, this this psychedelia um you know movement that was going on and they wound up getting what is essentially amounted to a, a residency at this one place to the and the point of all this story is as as nick describes it by the time they signed their record deal and and you know started to get ready to go into the studio to record piper at the gates of dawn as he said it they hadn't paid their dues. They hadn't had to go touring around the country because they were, you know, they had this place to play or places to play in inside London where everybody was into what they did. And it was a very, you know, safe and nurturing environment. It contrasted that with a lot of the bands who started out, you know, in the van. So they, they eventually had to get in the van and, and travel outside this sort of happy cocoon and, and, you know, that was a, that was a growing experience for them. But that was one of the interesting things that I, I found about, um, you know, early Pink Floyd in, in the book so far. Well, I, I dove into, um, Pink Floyd's Piper at the Gates of Dawn, 33 and a third series from Audible. And after absorbing three quarters of that book, I wrote to you on the text. Personally, I think the Floyd were lazy, upper-middle-class tarts. You did say that. That is a quote. They didn't pay their dues. They, 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 they were just snotty kids hob-bobbing around, identifying uh, with an American culture, with, with, with a different pain, but not the same pain. Yeah. And, and they, they were quite in the bubble, and it was, it was purely... Um, EMI financing them to fill 
a niche that the Beatles left behind when the Beatles stopped appearing in public and touring. The Rolling Stones were on Decca Records. I believe the Moody Blues on Decca Records. And there seemed to be uh, some, some labels that were competing to get into this space. For whatever reason, the young adults at this time had a uh, disposable income and free time and wanted to identify with cultures. And it was, uh, you know, the, the, what, what the early versions of what we have today, the race to win over the hearts and minds of the disposable income earners. I have two points I want to make, one, one early and, and one later. And we'll see where that goes sort of in this preamble section. So one of the things that I, you know, obviously I wasn't familiar with as I started into this, and I was very, very curious, was the influence of one Sid Barrett. Uh, again, having never listened, really, I don't think, to the first two Floyd albums, Sid Barrett is, you know, when I got into it, and, you know, here's here's a fun fact, and I think I've mentioned this before, Wish You Were Here, the very first compact disc I ever bought. And it was very purposefully the very first compact disc I ever bought. At that point, when, you know, you guys were, I think you were playing Wish You Were Here in your set. And, oh. and I was absolutely just gobsmacked by Welcome to the Machine. And that is what drove me to make that album the very first CD that I bought. And I still have that particular CD. We'll never ever forget. Um, you know, purchasing that. So, so when you, when you, when Wish You Were Here is the first CD that you buy, not the first album I bought, but the, the very first CD, obviously you're, you're exposed to Shine On You Crazy Diamond. And then you hear about when, you know, the story of when Sid Barrett came into the studio when they were finishing that up and no one recognized him. And, and he, He's always been this sort of phantom figure in the background that, you know, I could see out of the corner of my eye, but I didn't know what it was. And, you know, it, it almost, the, the, the myth of Sid Parrott, you know, kept growing to the point where I'm like, what am I going to think of Sid Barrett when I get into this? <laughs> and, you know, I was, I was actually very, very pleased for the most part with, with what I heard. Um, you know, and that was, it, it was one of those things where in actuality it wasn't nearly as, as, you know, out there or jarring or, you know, whatever as I would have thought. So that was, that was just kind of my own thing. That was kind of fun. Oh, yeah. He's an artist. He's, you know, middle class educated guy, uh, does well with the ladies and, uh, communicates well with his, you know, fellow man and, uh, kind of, is like appealing. I mean, maybe I'm kind of spitting with the guy. He's all right. Yeah. So the other, the other question that I have for you and, and, and can you have, um, wildly good taste, great looks and liberal leanings. That's true, but you have sort of adopted or, or you, you carried the mantle, as we've discussed before in, in our little group as sort of the, the cutting edge trendsetter. And part of that had to do with you not being a younger sibling in your family. You were sort of ahead of the curve in, in certain regards to that. Uh, 
And, and uh, all you guys in general were well advanced compared to me. But so the question that I have is, well, no, no, no. You had you had older brothers that gave you very advanced musical tastes. You you just got your hands on a musical instrument later in life. So uh, just displacement there. But 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 in terms of ears, you developed the ear very early on. So here's here's the thing, though. We talked about the wall. We talked about it being on the radio. But the question I have for you, Ken, is do you recall? And, and when was it the first time you saw the movie, The Wall? Uh, sure. I intimated in a previous episode that I had a stack of blank audio cassettes and I would record full albums off of FM radio, uh, including, I think still to this day, I recorded the final cut and I think that survived. Um, on videotape, I know I recorded The Wall off of television. Whenever really? it was broadcast, when uh, uh, MTV, I assume, but you know, I, I, <laughs> I only <laughs> for exit stage left. I scored the FM simulcast. You know, Russia's exit stage left was simultaneously shown on MTV and broadcast, and that's when I understood time delays. It was impossible for them to broadcast over the TV and over the radio at the same time. And I was recording the radio and watching the TV and, and just marveling over this horrible, you know, sequence. They weren't the same damn thing. Um, but I learned a lot from that experience. And I, I, I knew that I had to have access to a VCR and, and, and videotapes ready. And, and, and I don't recall the exact event that made the wall you know, somehow broadcast, but I, I know I had, we had it on videotape. Wow. I knew the music from the radio and I'd heard about the wall, you know, and, and it was not something that in my household, anyone would have sought out or, or gone after. Maybe my, maybe my stepbrothers might have actually. Well, don't you remember it was either late elementary school yeah, late elementary school. Um, there were plenty of kids on the school bus who would just say, we don't need no education. It was just a phenomenon where that lyric just permeated the entire culture. And you couldn't find an elementary school kid who didn't at least know the line. Right. Yeah. It was, it was, it was everywhere. And then when I remember when I saw the, the movie and it was probably sometime in high school. I, we probably had some sort of get together. I, I seem to recall, but my memory's faulty. Where I, I first saw it, and, and I've seen it, you know, I saw it several times in college after that. And, and it was, you know, it was, I'll say, funny because it wasn't necessarily what I was expecting. I, I guess, I didn't realize of what drove and drive continues to drive today, Roger Waters. So that was just that was an interesting part of it all. You know, and, and here again, when we talk about, you know, is Pink Floyd progressive, you have this, this very strong visual component to this. I mean, the guys made a freaking movie for crying out loud, and they had these elaborate stage shows <laughs> around it. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think there, you know, it, it was, it was a joke in a way, because I think there is clearly no, no doubting that Pink Floyd is progressive. Regarding the we don't need no education and, and, and what exactly did Roger Waters think, 
that almost sounds today in in hindsight somehow weirdly libertarian like we don't need public schools we don't need the the, the government educating our children we'll decide that locally or in the family or something it's interesting the philosophers of the progressive rock age roger waters and neil peart went on this journey and clearly peart was the libertarian and 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 roger waters was the you know liberal social democrat but but they 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 kind of started as rambunctious protesters and and they grew into wise old men as they traversed so I, i do see a bit of a fun arc to play with there yeah Excellent. Good. I like it. And, and then, of course, we have, you know, and, and in our preamble, we can, you know, go the full spectrum. And, of course, there was the um, there was the breakup. And I, I like to to joke that in the Pink Floyd divorce, David Gilmore got custody of me. Um, <laughs> Roger Waters has visitation rights, but uh, but David Gilmore has custody. <laughs> so oh, just boy. just so that my biases are are put out on the table. Uh, but you know, there there's another part to this, right? Because one of the driving forces for the palaver. And the start of the, the palaver wall here in my, in my TV room was the Roger Waters show, Us and Them. So. Friend of the palaver, Dave Kersner has raved about some of the bands that Roger has put together. And that could be the current peak Floyd, uh, at least according, according to, uh, Dave Kersner. Um, you, you saw, a wonderful, wonderful tour at, at that point. Whether or not you know, for you personally, it's it's the peak. It it, it 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 was an amazing recreation of the Floyd catalog, right? Oh yeah, it, it it's so good the way that you know Roger still has such passion for the message that he's bringing. You know, because it, we see this all the time. Guys get to a certain age and they kind of mellow out. And they're like, yeah, okay, cool. I'm, you know, I'm just up here chilling. And, and, you know, Roger's still very much an angry young man in a lot of respects. He still very much likes to present you with images designed to make you uncomfortable and to make you think about things. And I, I almost bought the hoodie with the pig flying over the power station. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to terrorize my neighbors that bad. (laughs) I like to make a statement, but I think the red is a little too much for me these days. (sighs) So it was funny when I went to go see that show, I thought I was so smart because here I am, I'm an educated man. I'm old enough to to actually think of things. And so when I bought those tickets, I very purposefully bought seats in a very specific section of, of the arena because I knew I'd been to the arena a bunch, so I knew where the sections were. I knew how it was laid out. I didn't want to be on the floor because it can be difficult to see sort of everything that's going on. So I perched myself direct, like the lowest 
tiered section directly at the opposite end of, of the of the arena. So I would have a full, perfect view of the stage, right? This was my uh -huh. plan. I'm like, look at me. Look at how smart I am. And the first half of the show, that was paying off in spades. I'm like, yeah, mm -hmm. this is great. What I didn't know <laughs> was that Roger Waters, being the the visual genius that he is had cooked up a surprise for the second part of the show where he basically turned the American Airlines uh, center, I think it's center, into the Battery Sea power station. And this entire, like, thing kind of came out from the center of the stage going the entire length of the of the arena and it kind of dropped down a little bit. So there was this three-dimensional structure that they would then project stuff onto from oh the sides. And oh it was God. right in front of me. <laughs> and you no longer could see the stage. Right. So if I was really as smart as I thought I was, I would have been one section to either side of where I was. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, you were the only sober bloke in the joint. So fuck all that. <laughs> well, and, and it was funny because, you know, I, Dallas, Texas is, you know, I, I mean, Dallas itself is probably blue, but Texas is very, very red, very, mm -hmm. very red. And Roger's message is very blue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, resist. I, I, I was curious how that was going to go over and. You know, there wasn't any problem, but it's just, you know, I wonder if he gets a more visceral reaction in, in other parts of the country. It was uh, it was interesting, but I think he gets visceral reactions every day he's awake. So, yes, yes, I think he's used to this <laughs> at some level somewhere, be it the fans or the security guards or whoever feels like barking him at, at him at any given day. So that's that's sort of you know my fundamental experience, sort of on a on a broad scale with with Pink Floyd. I think Pink Floyd was always, in a lot of ways, with a few exceptions, a lot more accessible. At least in in the areas that I I stayed in, Dark Side, Wish You Were Here, Animals maybe stretches you a little bit, but but really not that much. Um, the Wall conceptually maybe is a little odd, but musically it's pretty straightforward. The final cut was was a bit of a phantom record. And then obviously the, the Gilmore records were extraordinarily accessible. So, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. I never had to work for understanding Pink Floyd in the way that I had to work with Tales from Topographic Oceans or Relayer or The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. It, it never required the the sort of amount of, of investment that, uh, that some of these others did. And, you know, I, that's not to say that I got everything I could have out of them because I didn't, you know, have to put in that amount of effort. Well, it, it, it takes a lot of just pure understanding and empathy and self-actualization to create some of this. Uh, you know, I'll call Nick, Mace, Nick Mason and Richard Wright geniuses in their own right for sticking with the 
simplicity in carrying the vision. I mean, the whole team, Roger included, Dave Gilmore included, they're operating more like art students than music students. Music students are, are noisy, noodling bastards. And they, they came to this audio pastiche as artists. And they were able to maintain a level of simplicity. And I mean, some of their most egregious faults, if you want to call them that, are possibly on Piper. And and they and they and they, and they cleaned up their presentation very shortly thereafter. Yeah, and and you know I think a lot of that, as we mentioned, you know at the at the top of this, is the fact that they hadn't had to pay their dues, so to speak. You know, a lot of you know we had talked about Genesis really honed their their playing and their songwriting through you know constant shows and 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 everything else. Whereas these guys, you know, maybe didn't have quite that level of, of that type of experience. So, you know, once they started that, it seems that they were able to, to sort it out pretty quickly. Yeah, more so than, uh, I mean, more so than the Beatles in some ways. The Beatles recordings were a little noisy during the psychedelic area. And um, uh, the Stones got a little weird and muddy in some of what they did in their catalog. Uh, so I admire the, the pristine delivery that Floyd achieved when they did it. I mean, I, I couldn't point to any Rolling Stones album and say it sounds as precious as a Pink Floyd album. It's just more of a, a, a visceral, guttural experience. It's, it's not quite the piece of art that you get from Floyd. Yeah. I, I feel we have to mention at this point, and, and we've talked about it in, in other episodes and everything else, Pink Floyd, starting from some point, and, and we can decide where that point is, were, they clearly mastered the art of producing an album <sighs> well beyond their peers. Mm -hmm. I mean, even today, you know, listening, to, you know, when you said Dark Side came out in 73, the reason why you don't think it's 73 is because it sounds fucking awesome. It sounds seven, eight years ahead of its time. It does. And it's it's wonderful. And, and you know, Wish You Were Here, absolutely flawless animals, the wall and, and all of them. You know, it's, it's so good that the one thing, and, and I'll make a quick plug and we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll come back to it. I found a short four episode podcast called The Lost Art of Conversation, which is basically a long interview that David Gilmore did with a journalist that split into four parts talking about the, the, the Gilmore years specifically. They talk about the, the fact that a momentary lapse of reason sound it was it was by design produced in in a way of using all the the most up to date gizmos and gadgets and everything else and by their own admission it it does sound maybe a little dated much more so than i think the rest of the catalog does so that would be the one caveat that we would have in there the other thing that the other general point that i would like to make you know, as I started going around to do this, you know, part of the fun of, of this is, is hunting the, the media, 
right? At least for me, that's, that's kind of the way I do it. So I've, I've been running around looking for either vinyl or CD. I don't really care which, um, vinyl I will listen to at home, CDs I will listen to in the car back and forth to work of the, the Pink Floyd catalog. And at some point, and I, I don't exactly, well, I guess I can probably look in the mid 2010s, I guess there was a lot of reissues of the, the Pink Floyd catalog. And I can't necessarily say what was on the original, but I can say that the information that's available on these reissues is wholly unfulfilling. So, <laughs> so you know, it, it has, it has the original artwork. It has, it, you know, they, the theme seems to be they'll have lyrics and the lyric and the songs will have, you know, writing credits. But that's usually about it um, with regards to sort of the extra stuff. Although, looking at this, um, Piper does have a few extra things, but a lot of the other ones do not. So that's just a general beef I have that I, I, I don't appreciate some of the packaging that they did on these, these Pink Floyd reissues. So, Ken, you have made mention of the fact that this ties into the Beatles discography. And oh, yeah, that's Can very important. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the, the context in which the Piper at the Gates of Dawn comes into being. Yeah, yeah. A bunch of uh, <sighs> hoity toity want to make a buck. EMI record execs were kind of jonesing that the Beatles were no longer touring and playing out. And they thought they could uh, leverage all of their resources and everything that they had learned from those sessions to uh, get some young tykes in there and uh, whip up some uh, recordings to sell. Um, the... Uh, Beatles happened on recording in 1963. Please, please me. Then with the Beatles, introducing the Beatles, meet the Beatles, Twist and Shout was 1964. Um, then two more albums, the Beatles' second album, Beatles' Long Tall Sally. Uh, before we get to A Hard Day's Night in June of 64, they're still not done producing. Something new was put out. Now, now, a lot of this was just repackaging of the same material. And, and it appears as capital, but in, you know, in the, the Floyd vernacular, it, capital is always referred to as EMI. And in the Abbey Road vernacular, it's always re referring to the record company as EMI. Uh, it's interesting that, uh, in 1964, you get other labels, uh, parlor phone is in the mix. And I guess some of this is, is happening on two different continents. So you'll have a, a record company in the UK and a record company in America, but, uh, parlor phone is, is actually in the UK and capital, uh, spans two continents throughout this period. Re well, Rubber Soul is pretty freaking amazing, but I'll, uh, let me, l let me go back to Beatles for Sale was kind of the definitive re-release of some of that, uh, previous stuff. Beatles 65. Help is August 1965. Rubber Soul is December of 65. It's amazing how close those two brilliant albums are together. 
just those two would keep me satisfied on a desert island for a very long time. I'm sorry, which two, Ken? Um, help and Rubber Soul. Oh yeah, that's 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 quite a duo. And if you want to make a really nice trio of early Beatles, where they're pretty gelled and their songwriting is, is solid, you've and and you've got less cover songs. You've got Help, Rubber Soul, and Revolver. Uh, that's, it's just an amazing period. So I imagine what the, the, uh, Floyd, the Floyd, Roger, Sid, uh, Nick, Richard, were listening to would have been those albums, uh, Rubber Soul, Revolver, as they were putting this all together. Now, we probably need to take a jump over to the Stones at this point, because okay. although the although the Beatles started first in '63, the Stones are on tape or vinyl or whatnot in '64 uh, with the Rolling Stones UK release, England's newest hit makers. Out of Our Heads is in July 65. December's Children and Everybody's Aftermath Between the Buttons. This all leads up to uh, the time that they would have been getting all of their musical shit together. So, so I think the reason we parallel the Floyd and the Beatles so tightly is because of the EMI connection and the Abbey Road connection. But on the timeline, the Stones are right friggin' there. And it's just months after Piper at the Gates of Dawn that, that their magic, uh, their sat- satanic majesty's request comes out, uh, which is a pretty tripnotic Stones album. I don't know if you can picture this, but when we were kids, there used to be rings and Cracker Jack boxes that would have oh, yeah. like little, yeah. Yeah. You, you turn it one way and it would catch the sunlight one way and mm-hmm. you turn it another way and it was a slightly different image. Well, my mom had a copy of their Satanic Majesty's Request and it had some kind of a little cute little translucent hologram like oh, cool. like glued to the friggin' cardboard on, on, on the record. And and clearly something about that was indicative of the psychedelic era. So they they, they started as blues and went into psychedelia you know, before going fully commercial. So between the Beatles and the Stones and just just at the same time, the Moody Blues start happening. And I want to say the Moody Blues really smoke the Floyd. They really kick their fucking asses. <laughs> the, 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 the Floyd, it looks like idiots compared to this because um, the Moody Blues are just, you know, a blues band with American influences. But they released Days of Future Past in November of 67. Just, just, just. That was in or, November of 67, really? Two or three months after Piper. So, yeah, the Floyd got their shit out. You know, I mean, I get, you know, you could say that they. Through, through the the genius of Sid's writing, and and their willingness to do anything for EMI and and make this all work, uh, 
they, they got their stuff released. I guess it was August, but you know, there was some amazing shit happening very shortly afterwards between days of future past and many blues and their sat- satanic majesty's request. So, you know, if I had to pick an album to be stuck with on a desert Island, it's probably not going to be Piper. It would be one of those other right, yeah, records with a little bit of maturity and, and, and something to latch onto. But for a, a freshman effort, hats off. They, they did a great job. So when I was looking at this, knowing that your department is is the context, I had to go and look up when Sgt. Peppers was released, and I was amazed to see that Piper at the Gates of Dawn was fully recorded before Sgt. Peppers was ever released. I did not realize that Days of Future Past came out literally just months afterwards. That is amazing. One of the questions that I would have, though, based on a couple of of references in Nick Mason's book, as well as maybe some music cues that I hear just in Piper, where on the timeline do the Doors and Cream fit in here? Oh, well, the Doors were American bastards. Let me see here. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna look up Cream. I find that much more interesting. Yeah, it's 66 uh, that they released Fresh Cream. And December, though. So, so yeah, yeah, that's perfect, perfect reference. And, and no doubt Cream would have been all, all, all the rage. And the guys in the Floyd would have, would have been on to that. It, it's amazing in the uh, 33 and a third book that I referred to that they had such stark demographics of audience you know one term that comes up particularly during the Jimi hendrix tour it's Jimi hendrix the floyd the nice and the move and they the book talks about finding different crowds in different cities but it would be like one city would be one third this one third this one third this and then you get a slightly different mix in glasgow Mm which was a city and then you'd be out in the stick somewhere and, and they'd just be lager drinkers and they wouldn't <laughs> give a, a rat's ass about anything psychedelic. And clearly, you know, cream did a much better job of performing simultaneously for the city folk and the country folk. We got the blues, but we've also got a little bit of psychedelia and we're going to really give you a kick-ass rock show. Where, where the Floyd kind of started putting all their eggs in the uh, in psychedelia, more advanced city folk basket. Right. So we can discuss Pink Floyd's Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which was released on August 4th, 1967. It was released on the label EMI Columbia and Tower Records, I think, in the U.S. It was produced by Norman Smith. Sid Barrett on electric guitar, acoustic guitar, percussion and vocals. Roger Waters, bass guitar, slide whistle, percussion, gong, and uncredited. Oh, he's uncredited for the gong. Oh, that's what Nick was talking about in vocals. Richard Wright is given credit for the Farfisa Combo Compact Organ, piano, tack piano, Hammond organ, harmonium, celesta, cello, Lowry organ, vibraphone, honer pianet, violin, percussion, 
and vocals, and Nick Mason is credited with drums and percussion. Now, a bit of a controversy with regards to the track listing, and I'm not, I wasn't aware of this. If we look at the, and I don't know which on, what's on Spotify, but the, the UK release has Astronomy Domine, Lucifer Sam, Matilda Mother, Flaming, uh, Power Talk H, however you say that, Take Up Thy Stethoscope and Walk, Interstellar Overdrive, The Gnome, Chapter 24, The Scarecrow, and Bike. This is actually the track listing that's on my reissue from 2015 or 16. But the, the wikis list an eight track release. Right. Um, and a U.S. release, the, the U.S. track listing was entirely different. Uh, it starts out with C. Emily Play, Power Talk H, um, Take Up Thy Stethoscope and Walk, then Lucifer Sam, Matilda Mother, The Scarecrow, The Gnome, Chapter 24, and Interstellar Overdrive. And they put Interstellar last because they didn't want it in the U.S. <laughs> right, right. Well, and, and they, they put CMLE Play on there and took off Astronomy Dominate, which is, you know, it, I don't know. I guess that makes a certain amount of sense. But it, I, I wasn't aware that there was a big difference there. So, um, mm. continuing on. The Piper at the Gates of Dawn is the debut studio album by English rock band Pink Floyd, released 4 August 1967 by EMI Columbia. The only album made under founding member Sid Barrett's leadership, it takes its title from Chapter 7 of Kenneth Graham's The Wind in the Willows and was recorded at EMI Studios in London from February to May 1967 with producer Norman Smith. The band at the time consisted of Barrett, lead vocals, lead guitar, Nick Mason, drums, Roger Waters, bass vocals, and Richard Wright, keyboards vocals. Barrett also served as the band's primary songwriter, though two tracks on the album are credited to the band collectively, and one track was written by Waters. The album was produced by Norman Smith, who would go on to produce two more albums for Pink Floyd. In the United States, the album was released in October on Tower Records with an altered track listing that omitted three songs and included the UK non-album single See Emily Play. In the UK, no singles were released from the album, but in the US, Flaming was offered as a sing single. Two of its songs, Astronomy Domine and Interstellar Overdrive, became long-term mainstays of the band's live set list, while other songs were performed live only a handful of times. Since its release, the album has been hailed as a pivotal psychedelic rock album. In 1973, the album was packaged with the band's second album, A Saucer Full of Secrets, 1968, and released as A Nice Pair to introduce new fans to the band's early work after the success of The Dark Side of the Moon. Special limited editions of The Piper at the Gates of Dawn were issued to mark its 30th, 40th, and 50th anniversaries, with the former two releases containing bonus tracks. In 2012, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn was was placed at number 347 on Rolling Stone magazine's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Now, that is an interesting statistic, that very last thing, and I would um mm. I would argue that while it may be important I would not put this album on <laughs> on a list of greatest albums of all time. I, I, I'm sure, you know, 500 is a lot, 
but I'm sure I could probably find 500 more deserving albums than this one. And that's not to say it's not good. I, I just, I find that to be funny. But I, I, I often get kind of bristly anytime Rolling Stone gets brought into the equation. Well, it's, it's easy to exalt this in hindsight, but if you think of all the genius and man hours and creativity that went into this, you know, including Sid's and Rogers and the band mixed in with the Abbey Road skills and, and the record company Savvy, and then the, uh, oh, heaven forbid, I forget the two managers already. The, the folks that really supported uh, Sid even after he he was no longer in the Floyd. You've got a hell of a lot of people. You, you think you maybe would have gotten something a little more polished than this, you know? That's their shtick, though. You that, know? that is their shtick. And I, I did come across a passage, I believe, maybe it was in the wikis. I don't think it was actually in Nick's book. But somewhere I read it fairly recently a tale of the producer having difficulty working with Sid on this record. And, you know, it. I think it's probably a very typical of the artist versus the record label conundrum, whereas Pink Floyd had made their, their name with, you know, these, these psychedelic, you know, rave performances where things like Interstellar Overdrive were, you know, what people were looking for, but the, the record company obviously wants a more song focused record. You know, I think there was a little bit of tension there, uh, with regards to this, but yeah, I mean, when I first put this on, I was pleasantly surprised. I think, and, and I find with the exception of, of opening with C. Emily play, I find the U.S track version to be very interesting because i think this track listing or the the uk track listing the one that i've been listening to i think has all the really strong songs right up front and then it kind of gets a little little wonky after that okay i would say the collection no matter what the sequencing you give it is a little tiring, so therefore I'm more apt to like what comes at the beginning and 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 grow a bit tired towards the end. And and at least in the version that I use, they had bike at the end, so it gave me a little bit of a breather. Yeah, I've got I've got bike at the end as well. Like I said, there was a lot here that I wasn't really expecting. Again, I don't know much about psychedelia, but there were, you know, musically, there were some things, especially in the first part of this record. And I don't know where to, where to classify these things, right? But, you know, I was, I was kind of reminded maybe of, of 60s surf music a little bit. And some of it reminded me of, you know, the, the 80s punk with like the Agent Orange and, and, you know, that sort of thing. And, and there was, there was a lot here that I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's kind of cool. It wasn't what I was expecting, but I found it to be very, very enjoyable. So the, the other thing that pops up on this, and, and it's very funny since I made such a big production out of it in our Genesis segment, Sid Barrett is seemingly a very whimsical kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> with, with the exception of Astronomy Domine, a lot of these songs are, are they're kind of silly. And I don't know if they're silly because 
he's trying to be subversive in a nice guy sort of way, or if he's just a goofball, I, I don't know. I found the whimsy in this particular case didn't really grate on me in the way that it did in Genesis, so. Oh, okay, fair enough. I suppose you're kind of implying Sid and Peter on a similar levels. I, I mean, that that's the obvious parallel to draw, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but Sid is is just more interested in doing some art, going shopping, doing some acid, and hanging out with the the hip crowd. Whereas I, I think I think Peter actually envisioned a movie or a drama, or, you know, a show like musical theater from from end to end. So so it was a different a different. <laughs> <laughs> different take on things with Peter. The spotlight would be on him, but with the Floyd, they were known for anonymity during the set with very low lights and not drawing attention to any one player. So you could, you could divide it up that way. Right. Okay. Do you want to get into the songs here? Yeah. I just want to credit the two blokes. Oh yes. Uh, who believed in Sid, uh, Peter Jenner, uh, a lecturer at the London school of economics and his business partner, Andrew King. It's very, very interesting that they truly believed in the personality and the art and the vibe of Sid and didn't follow what turned out to be the cash cow of Pink Floyd. Right. <laughs> the album, op- or the, the version that we're listening to, opens up with Astronomy Domine. Now, this is, you know, this is kind of cool. Again, I think it's probably more psychedelia than I would have anticipated. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. And it's it's kind of dark and ominous. And, you know, one of the big question marks for a someone who didn't know about Sid Barrett was, well, what does, how does Sid Barrett play, right? You know, it, it, when you, when you realize that Steve Howe didn't play on the first two Yes albums, you're like, you start listening to the guitars and you go, oh, okay, I can see where Peter Banks is, is, is a different cat. Cool. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I found, I find this to be very, very enjoyable. And, you know, listening to it in, in the car, you can, you know, they, they, they have some fun with the production and the, the, the way they split the channels and whatnot. So, yeah, you know, I, I, I think this is, I think this is a great way to, to open an album. And I think it really kind of sets the table, as it were. Perfect. Not, one of my favorites, not something I'm running around singing, but um, it's an ideal way just for them to, to blast onto the scene. Yeah, it, it doesn't really lend itself to to singing, but it does it does set a mood, no doubt about it. Now, it's, it's funny you should bring that up, because Lucifer Sam. Now, this is a song. I love this song. What I find very funny about it is, you know, it starts out and it sounds like, you know, a 1960s spy movie, which is, is, you know, it's kind of fun. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's chugging mm-hmm. along. It's doing its thing. And, and it has sort of this, this descending riff. And then for me personally, the chorus hook is phenomenal, but it's so short, right? It's like <laughs> before you, by the time you realize that it's, you know, it, it's, it's, filling you with this wonderful feeling it's gone and you're you're back in the in the spy chase scene and you're going what what where where was that good hook you know (laughs) (laughs) and and 
you know, I, I just, I love both parts of this song. I just, I find it oddly charming in the way that it's sort of executed like that. I don't know. Wow. Bravo. I don't have any specific affinity to any of the, the first few tracks other than I, I just marvel that they got it all together as well that, as they did. Really? Because you, <laughs> you don't have affinity for these. Okay. Well, well, probably mostly for bike because that's what I, I heard even before I heard the entire album many, many years ago. So that stuck with me. No, I, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let you cruise through the tracks because they're just not, Part of my DNA. It's it, it's it's all stuff that ends up being in the background for me, as part of a deep dive. That is interesting. Like I said, I I I really really enjoyed Lucifer Sam. Although again, when you look at the lyrics, you're like, what the, f-? whatever. But <laughs> musically, I just I've I've over the last couple of days, you know, it's one of those things where I'll because I've I've had Piper in in the deck in the car. And and as soon as I start the car, I'll go right to to loose for Sam and get my jam on. So that's kind of fun. So we get into Matilda Mother, and ho, oh, we got some Hobbit shit here, folks. Mm-hmm. 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 So very cool. We we've checked one of our prog boxes, and you know this this song again. It's everything about this album. It's like it's so close, but they just don't stick any of the landings, right? So. I love the way the song is structured. You have that sort of brooding tone when the story, quote unquote, is being told, right? And, and it creates this, this sense of, of majesty associated with, um, you know, with, with tales of old and, and things of that nature. And then it's juxtaposed with, with, you know, when it cuts to the child and it's like, you know, hey, you know, I, I want my story, mom. Where, when's story time? And, 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 you know, I, I, I like that. I like the structure. I like the general intent of what they're going for, but the execution is, is kind of annoying. So when we, when we pull up and I want to get the lyrics just right, when it goes into the kid part, why'd you have to leave me there hanging in my infant air waiting? You only have to read the lines of scribbly black and everything shines. Now, Lyrically, words on a page, I love that. I like the way that they're communicating these, these ideas sort of abstractly yet clearly. Very, very cool. But the like group screeching on waiting makes me want to just climb the walls. It's like, ah, why would you do that? You know, like you're throwing me off my groove here. So I didn't care for that, but. You know, generally speaking, I I like the way they sort of constructed that that tale. So I'll give them props for that. All right, many props. I, I, you're branching out here. You're really impressing me, Joe, with your worldliness. <laughs> <laughs> so then we get to flaming. Now, for me, this is where the album starts to become a little bit more fractured. And my notes here say this song isn't particularly musical, yet it does have a Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds vibe. Hmm. Okay. Okay, but it's but it's pre-Lucy. Right. And that's that's why I had to look up when Sgt. Peppers came out. 
and and clearly this was this was even recorded before Sergeant Pepper's was ever released. So wait, Sergeant Pepper's was May, and this was this, released in August. In August, but the recording was finished by May of '67. Oh, fascinating! Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Okay. So so while I hear that, obviously they must have both been influenced by something else that I don't know what it is. Yeah, this is the era that we suck at. We just we, we didn't get the Moody Blues right in relation to Genesis, and we're barely going to figure out Floyd in time to get it. But we'll chalk it up to early flower power and psychedelia. Yeah. I hear the auto harp in here, and it always distracts me because it's like close miking of an auto harp. <laughs> uh, kind of draws my attention over everything else that they're trying to do here. So I, I, I would have to say... We're starting to get to my, my, my least favorite section of the album. So we get to, again, and someone please tell me how to say this. And I want to say that Joe Cass even said he doesn't know how to say this this next song, right? <laughs> right. Well, power. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're talking. Um, but, but, yeah, but, this is, but, yeah, this is, this is Joe's vocal warm up. Or his greeting, or depending on what, what mood he's in. So, so Joe Cass, Total Mass Retained drummer, friend of the Palaver, uh, will 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 always, you know, uh, come to mind when I when I hear this track now. Exactly, and you know, if it wasn't <laughs> if it wasn't for Joe's enthusiasm, I would be a lot harder on this. <laughs> because, and 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 my note here says, what exactly is it? I mean, I I I. I don't know exactly what they're going for here, but well, you you do get a bit of Richard's genuine musicality. So so it, it's pretty clear that the Floyd could not have structured melody and harmony with Sid and Roger alone. Particularly, Sid as a composer was was brilliant, but I suppose he needed a bit of an arranger, which which came from Richard Wright. And so he's got his hands on a piano here and you're finally getting the impression that this dude actually knows a bit how to play music. So I do, I do like that from a historical perspective here. Yeah. And no, and, and, and I definitely agree with that. And, you know, it's, it's always fun in the early parts of bands trying to see who's developing differently than others and how that influence starts to exert itself. It, it is interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then we go to Take Up Thy Stethoscope. So this is the Roger Waters song. Now, you know, musically, I, I have no fundamental problem with this. It definitely does have a different feel that, you know, you can attribute to the different songwriter. Even the lyrics or the, the vocal melodies is okay. But, I mean, these lyrics, man, for, for a guy who would go on to write The Wall and The Final Cut, this is a rough start. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about drums since it starts out very drum heavy. For whatever reason, it was kind of like a chunky Tom and Snare surf music that got uh, Nick into the beginnings here. And then then Richard's on a Farfisa organ, which further promotes the the surf california american vibe yeah for me this just substantiates you know some of what would have been going on in the london clubs and what would have 
blended the the surf and the flower power into the psychedelia. So it's 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 a it's a good jumping off point. I kind of kind of feels good and makes a point. Richard's kicking ass on the uh, on the organ. Yeah, I mean it's just it's it's a shame that the lyrics are just so. If you don't read the lyrics, you don't even really notice it. When you look at them, you're like, oh, that's all you got. <laughs> <laughs> So, Simplicity. And then we get into Interstellar Overdrive. This was where I had made the comment of the cream vibes. I would not have necessarily thought that before, but one of the passages that I had read in Nick's book just over the weekend was he mentioned they, at least some of them, went to see Cream perform, and he was in awe of Ginger Baker's drum kit. And and so, ah, okay. So I was, you know, apparently after seeing that show is when he de- he determined that he needed to get a double bass drum set up. <laughs> okay. It was in this song that I started to hear that, and presumably this is you know tied to some of their their live performance pieces, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to look up the Peter Gunn theme, which is actually Henry Mancini released in 1959. So there there would have been several years of this kind of dark, spooky. Did you refer to Secret Agents? Yes. Uh Uh-huh. I did. Yeah, 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 yeah. I want to use the word mod, too. And I do feel a bit of mod culture seeping into this, this, which we generally attribute to the who. And, and and I gotta say, compared to the sloppy punk nature of the Who, it makes the Floyd look further pristine. <laughs> it's funny you should say that because one of the notes that I have down here for this is more '60s movie music, whatever that entails. But you know, I- oh yeah, absolutely. So studio albums for the Who started in uh, December '65 with My Generation. And then uh, a quick one, otherwise known as Happy Jack in the U.S., was 66. Folks would have heard those things leading up to uh, Piper. Yeah, and then we got the Who sellout in December of 67. So kind of in this string of releases that we talked about with uh, Sergeant Pepper's, Piper, Her Majesty's, and... Uh, the Moody Blues, but who can be tacked on to that in December? Then it's time for some serious whimsy. <laughs> the tale of Grimble Grumble. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, you know, it. When, when you have a song like this, and, and it's a, about a gnome named Grimble Grumble, and it's it's got this sort of lilting sing song quality to it, and it's so relaxed, and it's it's whimsical to the upper ends of the atmosphere. But it has this charm to it that you, I, I can't, even I can't be mad about this, right? I I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of jellyfish, and then once you get into this little sing songy tangent of psychedelia it, it opens up so many doors into bubblegum pop it, it's it, it's kind of a beautiful refreshing genre in itself yeah you know so you get this sort of shift right 
we were surf musicking, we were modding, we were whatever, and and now we get into you know maybe a different aspect of the album, which again, you know, I I think this tracking makes sense to me in a lot of ways. What do we know about the wind and the willows? What do we know about any of these uh, more literary influences upon uh, Sid Barrett sadly, at this point? Sadly, nothing. <laughs> Okay. Well, uh, I, I just want to give uh, a brief moment to the wind and the willows as uh, influencing Sid, and I, I, I think I, I read at least you know huge chunks of it as a kid, and uh, you know Joe, uh, you know as you probably have no time whatsoever in between researching individual Pink Floyd albums. Should 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 you actually have a moment? Uh, yeah. Go, go back and check it out, and, and you'll see some of the uh, fantasy and whimsy that influenced it at this time. Cool. Yeah. Chapter 24. All movement is accomplished in six steps. Six stages, I'm sorry. And the seventh brings return. I like this. It has this sort of ritualistic language quality about it and it's you know what are they talking about is it kind of spooky is it bad is it good i don't know but it there's some power in these words it just starts to push some of my buttons and i don't necessarily know why i want to say there's something very geometric here and um i'm i'm, I'm setting up a, a compliment for you joe in in, in you know in, in the brief period that you did your three albums you you know, had a geometric sense of time signature and a, a simple concept of, of, of keyboards that translated very nicely. Your white car project would uh, kind of be a nice visit for someone who was into this track. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm on board with that. <laughs> now, no, no, of course, you have a more... Uh, Maybe a uh, 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 '70s new wave approach to you know vocals, new and, and Sid was kind of doing something like a chorale, or I don't know what, what he was shooting for there. Right. Yeah. But, um, yeah. 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 This is kind of early new wave for for Sid. Yeah. New chapter twenty four. Right. We're on yeah. the same page here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. There's just a simplicity, a really nice, sweet keyboard, a a, a little bit. Um, new wave yet very hopeful i dig it i i do i like that i I, you just reminded me of something that i need to to hop back quickly to the gnome to talk about and it's a it's a production point near the the back end of the song i believe it look at the sky look at the river isn't it good look at the sky look at the river isn't it good they have that that moment where they they really put all sorts of reverby echoey stuff on the vocals and it and it gets right up in your face on the isn't it good right and you can hear like all of the all of the muscles in the mouth moving and and it's just so immediate and and it's it's delayed just enough that it it creates this very cool space and it's it's different and i think if they had applied that technique more it would have been annoying (laughs) <laughs> but but the way that they use it, you know, it, it's it's almost like a, I don't know what it is. It's like a, a, a 
judiciously used highlighter, and I really like it. If I said Chapter 24 was a little bit like the Buggles, would you see where I was coming from? I would indeed. Yes. <laughs> cool stuff. All yeah. Right. Very cool. Okay, so the Scarecrow. This is not my favorite. I feel like I'm at a Ren Fair, and, you know, I don't necessarily want to be at this particular point. Mm. Mm. Yeah, tis better to have the real thing than to have facsimile thereof made by English tarts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> English tarts might take uh, umbrage with us as, as Americans for sort of claiming any ownership of Ren fares. <laughs> I get your point, Ken. And, uh, I, I will, I will go with it. Yeah. The, the scarecrow yeah. Is, is just not, this is not my, my favorite track on this record by any stretch of the imagination. Low class Yankees do what low class Yankees do. So. Yeah. So for you, you know, bike uh, apparently is a, big hit i've got sort of a love-hate relationship with bike i i don't hate it but i don't really enjoy it much either but that's because i react more to some of the stuff in the earlier part of the record and not this so much Mm -hmm. so you know that's i I think that's just you know sort of where my lane is yeah i mean it's very beatlesque they're really kind of humoring the pop crowd over the psychedelic trippy free jazz crowd but by the end of it it's just a song about shagging right he, he, he promises the girl everything and everything but really he just wants to hook up and and it just gives me a real chuckle <laughs> <laughs> well and and like i said there's there's always this charm about it, it, it you know we hadn't talked about arnold lane and that was their their first single i think right arnold lane the the song about the transvestite stealing women's uh, clothes off uh, or women's lingerie off clotheslines. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Sid, like I said, Sid has this sort of, it's a subversive sort of sense of humor, right? So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I get it. That sort of closes out the, the album version that we listened to. But I did spend a few moments to listen to See Emily Play. I was surprised that if, you know, it didn't show up in the UK version. And I, I think See Emily Play is a really, really solid song the tracks we just discussed and you know for the most part i think we we like them and appreciate them but when you're talking maybe about song craft see emily play is a i think a much stronger example of that than perhaps anything else that we've already discussed on one hand you can understand why it kicked off the american release given the way that presumably American audiences digest albums and things like that. It's interesting that it didn't wind up on the UK release, because I think it's a really, really solid song. I don't know. On the, on the tour, apparently people just wanted to see that. When they went out, they just wanted more of the CMLA stuff. And instead, people were seeing Interstellar Overdrive. <laughs> so... <laughs> And the way Nick Mason put it, they knew how to clear a room pretty quick. I'm with you. I appreciate the uh, the song craft and, and just the uh, pure melody of Sid. It's that image that the band loved and paid homage to years later. Yeah. 
for me, this was this was a, a very enjoyable and eye-opening experience. I am glad, you know, that we're doing this. I'm excited to talk about Floyd. And I'm excited that I enjoyed this album as much as I did. I think there's <laughs> there's there's a lot here to, you know, like and and not to disparage, um, because again, everything that we talk about, for the most part, we we really love these bands and we love this music and it and it it all moves us in different ways, but you have to sort of rank things. I, I'm much more likely, I think, to listen to Piper at the Gates of Dawn than I am to say from Genesis to Revelation or the first Yes album, even maybe. Oh, it's a more genuine representation of the band at the time. It's, it's less affected by industry pressure, despite having so many wonky experts in the room. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a true reflection of, of the different directions that they wanted to pursue at the time. I'll give them that. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pretty pleased with this. I'm very much looking forward to moving on to the second album, A Saucer Full of Secrets, and then we can bring David Gilmore onto the stage. Mm, no doubt. I'm sure they worked their asses off at various times, and I, I'm sure they deserve the successes that they found. But it just sounds like a ridiculously easy time to be picked as a musical virtuoso. I mean, the amount of attention they got from EMI and then jumping over to the Moody Blues. And, and the Moody Blues were like given an orchestra they didn't even want. Here, you kids need an orchestra. Let's put some orchestra on your stuff. They're like, uh, yeah, maybe, sure. Whatever we need to do to make our record. Like, they didn't pay a single due in the paying of dues. Right. They were, yeah, completely naive bastards. And uh, even during the relatively easy peacetime that we grew up in with relatively good economy, we still had to pay some goddamn dues. Nobody gave me a fucking orchestra. I'm 50 years old. Nobody's giving me a goddamn fucking orchestra. Where's my fucking orchestra? So where so indeed, just, Ken? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This this is a different time altogether. This is just a, a very unique time in history where all the forces aligned to create what we know as Pink Floyd, the Rolling Stones, and the Moody Blues. Outstanding. Cool. So that will put a pin in Piper at the Gates of Dawn. And like I said, we look forward to discussing next time a saucer full of secrets. Cheers, bloke. enjoyed this episode of progressive palaver as always we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you and we welcome and solicit your thoughts your feedback your comments your questions you can reach us on instagram twitter and facebook at prog paula or search for progressive palaver welcome to email us our email address is prog at gmail.com progressive palaver is available for subscription and download on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, and spotify and we are as always hosted on soundcloud so until next time Thanks for listening.